Hello, this is Pastor Matthew. I just want to take a moment personally to say thank you so much for taking time to listen to this podcast. Our mission is to impact the valley and bless the nations with the gospel of Jesus Christ. We encourage you to go check out our website at crosslinkva.com. By doing so, you can learn all about the ministries of Crosslink and how we're involved in the community. Please know we're praying for you. God bless you. If you have your Bibles today, I want to ask you to take them and open them with me to the New Testament book of Philippians, to Philippians chapter 4, for this morning's message and for our time together today. I am so thankful that you're here. I realize that it has been 4th of July weekend. I hope that you've had a wonderful time uh, with friends or with family celebrating, of course, our freedom. And uh, But I'm thankful that many of you are here. We have many people on the road, so I want to encourage you to be praying for our church family. I know this has been a unique season where many of us haven't seen each other yet at all over the past several months, but we have many many on the roads and out of town this weekend. So be praying for people as they travel. As we open God's word today, we continue on in our sermon series entitled Joy for the Journey, where we've been reminded that life is in many ways like a journey that is filled with ups and downs, twists and turns, mountains and valleys. There are joys along the way and there are hardships along the way. Life is very much like that. But in the midst of all of it, God wants us to know this morning and throughout the course of the series that there is joy. No matter the circumstance that we face, no matter the unknowns that we approach along the way, God wants us to know as we have a right relationship with him through faith in Jesus Christ, we can indeed have joy for the journey. It's not that we're pursuing joy, it's that we're called to pursue Jesus, that in knowing Jesus and walking with Jesus and relating with him, one of the byproducts of that is that we have his joy in our life. In Philippians chapter four, the apostle Paul is writing once again. And in the midst of that, he comes to a place where he's reminding us, hey, listen, I'm facing circumstance and yes, there's hardship. And yes, he's still in a Roman prison or in house arrest, whichever one you wanna refer to. The reality is he didn't know how this was gonna turn out. And yet, even in the circumstance, he had great joy. Today, we come to another component of how Paul had joy. And I wanna challenge you to really hear it and to seek to examine your life and determine, is this also true in your life? So this morning as we open God's word, I wanna begin with a simple question. And that question is this. Today, in your life, are you content? Are you content? The word content literally means to be satisfied, to be pleased, or to be happy. Oftentimes in our culture, certainly in our hearts and lives, and maybe even in the church, unfortunately, instead of walking with contentment, we have become a discontented people. In order to be content, we think we need to have some experience, some specific possession, some amount of wealth, maybe some specific relationship. And if we have these things, then we will be at a place of contentment. Oftentimes in the process of pastoral counseling, I've heard people say something like this, pastor, I'm not content but if I only had this, I would be satisfied. Or I'm not content in my situation in life, but if I had this relationship, this accountability partner, this spouse, if I had this, then I would be happy. So often we base our discontentment on a lack of various things in our life. But by living with that mentality, in essence, we become victims of our circumstance. We look at situations like, if I only had this, then I would be victorious. But what God wants us to see through Philippians chapter four is this. We can be more than conquerors through Christ. We don't have to live as a victim of our circumstance, but instead we can be victorious in our circumstance when we know Christ as our Lord and Savior. 
What Paul shows us in Philippians chapter four is this. If we have Christ and a relationship with him in our life, we can be content no matter what we face. Sound too good to be true? Sound impossible in the midst of a culture that is so divided when there's so much chaos and confusion and pandemic and all these things in the world? It may sound impossible, but God tells us in Philippians chapter four how we can have contentment. This morning, I wanna preach you on the subject, joy and contentment. And I want us to look at Philippians chapter four, four verses, verses 10 through 13. If you're physically able, would you stand to your feet for the reading of God's word? Listen to what God says through the apostle Paul. Verse 10, but I rejoiced, key phrase, in the Lord, once again, we see that in this passage, greatly, that now at last you have revived your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned before, but you lacked opportunity. Verse 11, not that I speak from want, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know how to get along with humble means, and I also know how to live in prosperity in any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. Verse 13, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Verse 13 again, I can do all things through him, through Christ, who strengthens me. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for the freedom that we have to come together to read your word. And I pray, God, today that we not just merely read it, but I pray that we truly hear it. And even more importantly, that we would receive it in our innermost being. God, would you convict us in ways that it's needed? Would you change us in all the ways that it's needed? And may it all be for the glory and praise of Jesus Christ. We ask these things in his name, amen. God bless you. You may be seated this morning. Joy and contentment. Are you content? So often we are prone to think that we have contentment when we have life going perfectly for us. When, when, when I'm experiencing everything that I've ever dreamt of experiencing, when I have every amount of wealth, every possession that my heart would desire, when I have every relationship that's working and functioning perfectly in my life, then I will be content. But the fact of the matter is this morning, no matter how hard you work, you will never have everything that our hearts, our sinful, deceitful heart desires. No matter how hard you work in life, there will be very rare moments when every relationship in your life is functioning in perfect harmony and in order. It's just very rare. In other words, what God wants us to see this morning is that we can have contentment no matter the circumstance that we're in. Contentment is not found in my world being perfect. It's not a lack of hardship. Warren Wiersbe defines it well. He says this, contentment is not escape from the battle, but rather an abiding peace and confidence in the midst of our battle. That's a good definition. The fact is, is that in our culture today, it is very difficult to hear and to apply a message on contentment. And our culture today, it does everything that it can to promote a message of discontentment that always leaves us longing for and wanting more. In our culture today, literally with the glitz and glamour of the world, we see numerous images of what the good life looks like. And so we often give into that and we begin to pursue those things. And eventually we find over time that it still leads to the unsatisfied feeling time and time and time again. Frankly, we struggle with discontentment because of our own fallen nature. Sometimes we give into the lies of the world and by our own fallen nature, we think, well, I want this and, and I deserve this. And so we pursue what we want instead of being content in Christ. True contentment is not found in more for me, 
But according to God's word, it's found in less of me and more of Jesus in my life. In other words, true contentment is not in temporary pleasures or possessions or positions, but ultimately true contentment is found in eternal purposes and promises. Listen to what Paul wrote in 1 Timothy chapter 6. I love this passage of scripture. The Bible says, godliness actually is a means of great gain when it's accompanied by what? Contentment in verse 6. For we've brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of it either. So if we have food and covering, with these we shall be, what's the word? Content. But those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires, which plunge men in the ruin and destruction. For the love of money, not money, but the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil. And some by longing for it have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Man, you live your life pursuing that procession, pursuing that wealth, pursuing that influence, pursuing whatever that is. The reality is in the end, it will leave you dissatisfied. What God is calling us instead to do is to pursue a relationship with him. Well, Philippians chapter four, these short verses, I believe that God really brings us to to mind two key components to experiencing joy and contentment. And they're both vitally important. So two things I want you to see this morning. The first is what we'll simply call the draw of discontentment. The draw of discontentment. Discontentment is always seeking, God, Satan uses this to tempt us ultimately to draw us away from the things of God. Satan does not want you to have the joy of the Lord in your life. Satan wants you to live your life discouraged and defeated. He wants you to live your life in complete and total despair, always looking for the next best thing. But what God is calling us to recognize is this temptation of discontentment draws us away from the things of God. We see this in this text in Philippians chapter four, beginning in verse 11. Notice what Paul says. He says, not that I speak from want. I don't speak from want. Now, this word want is a word that we often use in a different way in our culture. When we refer to our wants, we refer to something we desire. We might say, I want to go experience this with my family this afternoon. We might say that I want this food for for, for lunch, if you will. We would use the word want to express something that we desire. But this word for want that Paul says, I'm not speaking from want, is a different word. The only other time it's used in the New Testament is found in Mark chapter 12 when Jesus is there in the temple and the Bible says that many people were bringing their offerings and they were dropping them in the treasury box. Maybe you remember the story. The Bible says as Jesus was watching, here came a widow. She was, she was in a, a place of poverty. She was poor. She came and she had two mites. Literally, if you put them together, they would equal one cent, if you will. And she brought them and she put them in the treasury box. And Jesus said in Mark chapter 12, verses 43 and 44, these simple words. He said, this poor widow has put in more than all the contributors to the treasury for they all put in out of their surplus, but she, here's the word, out of her poverty, put in all she owned, all she had to live on. The word translated poverty in Mark chapter 12 is the same word that Paul uses when he says, I don't speak from a place of want. In other words, I want you to know I'm not in a place of poverty. I am not poor is what Paul is saying. Now, time out for a minute. Remember the context. Where is Paul when he writes these words? He's in prison. He's in a place where his freedoms are limited. And and, and as a Roman prisoner, his needs were not taken care of by the state, so to speak. 
He was completely dependent upon the support and the provision of other people who cared for him. And yet, even in this place where he could not earn work to make a living, even in this place where he, had not, he didn't really have money coming in apart from the offerings of the churches, he literally had nothing by the standards of the world. And yet, here's what he says. He says, I want you to know, I'm not in a place of need. I'm not in a place of poverty. Why? Because in the midst even of this imprisonment, I am finding that Christ is more than enough. I am finding even in the midst of my circumstance that God is taking care of me. In other words, Paul was not giving in to the temptation in prison of discontentment. Now, now, I believe that there are several things about discontentment that we can all relate to. It's often been said before that all people today, right where you sit, every single one of us live in one of two tents, content or discontent, right? One of two tents. So the question is, which one are you in today and which does God want you to live in? There are many things that can cause us to be discontent. If you agree, would you just shake your head? Let me know you're with me. Many things. But there are three primary drivers that often cause us to be discontent. The first, for example, would be the discontentment of material or financial situations. Many of us can be discontent by material or financial discontentment. And in that we might say, you know what? If I only had this amount of money, then I would be satisfied. If I only had this possession, this new smartphone, this new computer, then life would be grand and we're discontent. Others of us instead find that we struggle with relational discontentment. If only my, my, my spouse would date me or pursue me like that. If only I had friends like so-and-so. If only I had that mentor like, like this other business person had. And we look at relational discontentment and we are dissatisfied because of relationships. And some I would just say are circumstantial discontentment. We look at other people's circumstances and situations and we look at what they have going on for them and we think, you know, if if my circumstances were different, then I would be happy. If this thing hadn't happened to me, if only I got the opportunity that that person had, oh, if I were the boss, then life would be grand, or so we think. All these things can lead us to a place of discontentment. And so what God is showing us in his word is he does not want us to be ignorant of Satan's schemes. We need to be aware of how Satan uses discontentment to draw us away from the things of God. And so I would say to you three things that we see that draws us away from a place of contentment. Number one, we are drawn away by comparisons. Can you say the word comparison? We're drawn away by comparisons. Now, there are times that comparisons are good. If you are shopping to purchase a vehicle, I would recommend that you compare your options. And and you want to find a good deal. You want to find something that's dependable. Those things are good to compare. But oftentimes we allow comparisons to hinder us in a negative way. When we live our life focused on what everybody else is doing and we see the highlight reels of their life and we look at our own, we are very apt in our human nature to compare. And in doing so, we begin to minimize and take for granted the very blessings that God's done in our own life. Let let me illustrate that maybe in a lighthearted but hopefully humorous way. Several years ago now, Miss Heather and I had the opportunity to go to a nice restaurant. This was a five-star restaurant. I don't know if you've ever been in a five-star restaurant before, but what I'm saying to you is that it was fancy. I was told before I got there that I couldn't wear shorts in the restaurant, okay? Like, I knew I was going to a different restaurant when I realized right, I had to wear dress slacks. And we were blessed that this meal was provided for us. It was a gift to us, so, which means we didn't have to pay anything. That's the best kind of meal you can eat, Okay. And so we were excited and, and, and we were going not just with ourselves, but we were going with two other couples. So this was like a, a date with three married couples and, and we were friends with these individuals. And so sure enough, we all met up at the restaurant. 
we walked in and as soon as we walked in, I saw in the corner a baby grand piano and this guy was playing this thing like he was born to play. It was beautiful, beautiful. He was playing love songs and it was romantic and like the scene out of a Hallmark movie, okay? We walked in, we sat down, we were seated at our table and suddenly, I mean, I began to notice even the smells, like the the smells of these fresh flowers and herbs. It was just like, it it smelled like a spa in the middle of this restaurant. It was incredible. We sat down and we, we ordered our soup and we ordered our salad. It was like a It was like an Alabama meal, five full courses. I mean, it was awesome, okay? So we eat our soup, we eat our salad, we eat our entree. Everything was delicious. This night was absolutely amazing, like a scene out of a movie. And then it began to turn south. The waiter came up and he said, now, now, can I interest you all in a dessert? Truth be told, I really wasn't that hungry for a dessert, but anything with sugar sounds good, right? And so we were like, absolutely. He didn't give us a menu. I don't remember anyway. He didn't give us any kind of pictures. He just described the desserts to us. And so as he described the desserts, I chose what I wanted. And I said, well, I'll go with with that option, option number three or whatever. And so I ordered my dessert and he went to the back. We all ordered our desserts. He finally came back and he brought our desserts. And it just so happened to be, they served all the ladies first. But when the desserts came out, I guess mine was done. He put mine in front of me first. I'm gonna be honest with you. When he put the dessert in front of me, my first thought was, this isn't what I ordered. It didn't look anything like what he had described to me. In fact, because he served me first, I was kind of looking back like, is this a joke? You know, is this some kind of joke? And so I watched as he put the other desserts there at the table in front of me and I'm watching my buddy over here. His dessert is layered in chocolate. I look over at his wife's dessert. It's got salted caramel drizzled all over decoratively around the plate. And I'm like, man, this looks really good. What, what is in front of me, you know? And, and I watch, he serves everybody and he walks away and I'm like, well, this is it. Well, I can't complain like this meal was provided for me and I can suck it up and be a big boy and eat, right? And we began to dig in and then we began to eat that dessert. And my friends, man, they even had, they began to give such commentary on their dessert. You would have thought they would have been watching the Food Network all their life. They were like, oh, this ganache is so amazing. I was like, what is ganache? Who knows what this is? I'm from Alabama, people. This, this, oh, this fondant is so light. Oh, this drizzle is amazing. I mean, they are ranting and raving. And with every bite of their dessert, I'm like, this is horrible. You know, like it was, my dessert was not good at all. We leave the restaurant. As we're leaving the restaurant, Heather starts telling me, oh, this night was amazing. Wasn't, wasn't this beautiful? The food was delicious. The conversation, she's giving me a running commentary on everything she enjoyed. And then she looked at me and she said, what'd you think? This spoiled brat of a man looked at her and said, my dessert was horrible, right? Because that's all I was thinking of that moment. And she began to laugh and she said, you mean to tell me you're bent out of shape over a dessert? Of course, I quickly began to realize the foolishness in that moment. I was so bent out of shape by how bad the dessert was, I had truly forgotten about all the wonderful things of that evening. Why? Because as I was sitting there, I was comparing what I had to what they had. So often in our mindset and in our flesh, we are given into comparisons. If we, don't, if we wanna think about that for a moment, we don't have to look any further than just looking at Facebook and looking at social media. How often the enemy uses those things in our life to bring about this attitude of division and of comparison to where we're looking at the blessings of others. And in that process, we're literally seeing the highlight reels of other people's life. And when instead we begin to look at our own life and we see the bloopers and the mistakes and the imperfections and we think, oh, if only I was them, if only I could experience that, if only I could have that. And when we do, 
We allow ourselves to come to a place of discontentment where we begin to ignore and dismiss all the many blessings God has already done in our life. It's one thing to do that with a dessert or with social media, but how often do we do that just in the context of our life? Here is the apostle Paul. Paul is in prison. Paul could have easily in that moment looked around and said, God, Look at all these believers throughout the, throughout the region. Many of them are not sharing the gospel. Many of them are not faithfully serving you. Many of them are not faithfully, generously giving to you. God, look at what they're experiencing. And yet in the midst of it all, they're happy and they're joyful. They're not in prison, but here I am. Paul could have easily in prison looked and said, God, look at all the wicked people. Look at the pleasure that they're experiencing. Look at the smile on their faces. I know it's temporary and I know it's gonna be judged, but God, look how they're living it up. And God, look at me, woe is me in prison. But Paul refused to give in to that negative line of thinking. He refused to give in to that temptation. Why? Because he understood when we give in to the deception and the, into the temptation of comparison, it leads us to a place of deception. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 12 says it this way. Those who get called up in the trap of comparison are, and I quote, without understanding. It brings us to false conclusions about others, about ourselves, and most importantly, even God. So we've got to understand the draw of comparison. Secondly, we are also drawn away by covetousness. Can you say the word covet? Covet. That's an easy word to say, but man, it's not a word that we use much in our vocabulary anymore. The word covet literally means to want, to desire, and to lust after something that belongs to another. Doesn't sound very much of a big deal, but it is. God in his word in the Old Testament, the 10th commandment, you shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or his Mercedes or his smart, I'm kidding, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. The idea here is that when we come to a place of covet, it's the idea that we're looking at other people, we're comparing, and sometimes in comparing, we look at other people and think, oh, I'm doing pretty good, and we begin to get proud and boastful. But more times than not, we look at things of others, and instead of becoming proud, we begin to covet. Well, I wish I had that. I wish that was my experience. I wish that was my situation in life. And instead of acknowledging and appreciating what we do have, we simply want more or different. Instead of being satisfied with our current situation, we selfishly want what others have. Frankly, it's simply another form of idolatry where frankly we pursue what we want as opposed to what God wants for us. Someone say, well, pastor, what's the big deal? That doesn't sound like that big of a deal. But listen to James chapter three, verses 13 through 16. When we covet, it leads us to jealousy and selfish ambition. Listen to how big of a deal it is. James chapter three, verses 13 through 16. Who among you is wise and understanding? Let him show by his good behavior, his deeds and the gentleness of wisdom, but if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. This wisdom is not that which comes down from above, but it is earthly and natural and even demonic. Listen to this statement. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, say it with me, there is what? Disorder and every evil thing. When our life is filled 
with covetousness, when our life is filled in this context with selfish ambition and jealousy, it literally leads to disorder and every evil thing. We can see that in our own hearts. We can see that in social settings. We can see that in the context most likely of our extended families. We can see that in various movements in our culture today. We can see that sadly at times even in the church. When we are bent on having our way and getting what we want, there will be disorder in every evil thing. But I want this, but I want that. Ultimately, it's not about what we want. And what God is calling us to see is when we live with discontentment, it brings all sorts of ugliness, division and chaos and destruction into our life. But third, we are drawn away by complaining. You kind of get this picture here. Here's the apostle Paul. He's not drawn away with comparison. Now we see throughout the letters that Paul wrote many times, he was aware of the needs and the burdens of others and he sought to minister to them and to build them up. But beyond that, he was primarily focused in this moment of the circumstance that he was in and responding in a way that brought glory and honor to the Lord. He's not living in comparison. He's not living in covetousness. Even when he's in prison in Philippians chapter one, he's like, you know what? I'm in prison, but I'm rejoicing because the word of God's not in prison and the gospel's going forth. And even in my circumstance, God's doing great things. Which finally brings us to the point of, we can easily be drawn away with complaining. Not one time in this letter do we see Paul complain. I don't know about you, but that's convicting to me. My, my circumstances and situations seem so light compared to what Paul was facing. And not one time did he complain or murmur. What about you? Paul says in Philippians 2 verse 14, literally, do all things without grumbling or disputing. Well, an illustration, go look in the Old Testament, read about the Israelites. They're going to, face, going to experience the promised land. God's promised to be with them. God's promised to lead them. God's taking care of them along the way. And what is their response? They complain time after time, turn after turn. They thought they were complaining against Moses, but really they were complaining against God. It draws us away from the good things of God. It draws us away from experiencing the things that he has for us. And so notice what the scripture says in verse 11. Paul says, not that I speak from want, for I have, here's a key statement, learned to be content. I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. This word learn means to learn from experience. What that means is you're not gonna learn contentment naturally. You weren't born with contentment. Even as a child of God, you weren't born again with contentment. It must be learned in our life. We know that. If you have a child, you place them in a, maybe in a room or they have a toy, they might play and be perfectly content, be as happy as they can be until you place another child in that same room with a new toy. And suddenly that first child is not as content because they see a toy that they want. You've heard maybe the property laws of a toddler. The property laws of a toddler say something like this. Here's what a toddler thinks. If I like it, it's mine. If it's in my hand, it's mine. If I can take it from you, it's mine. If I had it a little while ago, it's mine. If I'm building something, all the pieces are mine. If it looks just like mine, it's mine. If I saw it first, it's mine. If you play with something, then put it down, it's mine. And if it's broken, it's yours. Aren't you glad we outgrow that? I said this somewhat lightheartedly. The fact of the matter is, is that a toddler lives with that mindset. 
right, of, of pursuing mine. Here's the reality. Paul's saying, listen, you don't learn contentment naturally. Here's, what happens is this, or you don't have it naturally in your birth. We've got to learn to be content. And here's the key statement, in whatever circumstances I am. So often we look at our circumstances and we come to God and say, God, would you spare me from this circumstance? Would you take it away from me? God, would you make my life easier? Would you take this hardship? It's too much to bear. But I believe what so often God is wanting us to see is that it's not about rescuing us from the circumstance. It's about us recognizing his presence with us in the circumstance. It's not about him removing that circumstance from us, but it's about him working in us to mold us and to shape us and to change us and to grow us to be the vessel that he wants us to be. So instead of complaining about our circumstances, instead we should turn to Christ and let him change us in the midst of the very circumstances that we face. Oh, we see, I think, the draw of discontentment. Paul could have easily been there, but he continued to focus on the Lord, which brings us secondly to the discovery of contentment. How then do we have contentment? Pastor, don't you know it is 2020 and we're living in a world filled with all kinds of things. There are all sorts of social media images. All so, and there's so much wealth in the world and all these different things. So many things that the world puts before us that cause discontentment. How in the world can we have it? I believe Paul begins to kind of pull back the curtain to let us in on the secret in verses 12 and 13. Here's what he says. He says, I know how to get along with humble means and I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, here's the statement, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. Verse 13, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. When Paul says in verse 12, I've learned the secret, Paul uses the word learned in a different way. In verse 11, he says, I've learned to be content. And that word means to learn by experience. But the word he now uses in verse 12 literally means to learn by instruction and initiation. Kind of weird, isn't it? Paul ended the day when there were many false religions, there were many false leaders who would often speak of their religion and they would speak of their secrets and their mysteries, that if you would follow their teaching, if you would follow their movement, then after time you'd become aware of the many secrets and mysteries of their faith. Even in our day to day, there are false religions that have many secrets and mysteries that you will eventually come to some sense of enlightenment on. Paul's kind of having fun here when he says, now listen, I've learned the true secret. I've been brought into the mystery to know the answer to how we find contentment. And he sums it up really in one simple way. You find contentment in Christ. You don't find contentment in social media. You don't find contentment in comparing yourself to others. You don't find contentment in measuring your bank account, what's your net worth. You don't find contentment in how many business deals you had. You don't find contentment with how many children you have or whether you have this other relationship or not. You find contentment in a real, vibrant, soul-saving, life-changing, personal relationship with Jesus Christ. So out of that relationship... I wanna suggest to you four things that I believe Paul did that we should do that will help us to continue to walk in contentment in our relationship with Christ. Number one, we must rely on the providence of God. You wanna walk in contentment in the midst of a pandemic? Wanna walk in contentment when you don't know if you're gonna get the next paycheck? 
Want to walk in contentment when, when things aren't going so great in your marriage and you don't really know what's going to happen? Want to walk in contentment when, when literally someone has just walked out on you or your friend has betrayed you? Want to walk in contentment in the midst of every circumstance? Here's number one what to do. Rely on the providence of God. The word providence literally means that God sees it beforehand. That there is nothing that I'm going to face today or tomorrow that God is going to be unaware of. Do I know when we're not gonna to need to wear a mask again? I don't. Do I know what the season's gonna look like in the fall and are we gonna be back at school and all these different things? I don't. Do I know who's gonna win the election in November? I don't, but here's what I do know. I do know God and I know that he's in control and there's nothing that's gonna happen that's gonna surprise him. God sees it beforehand. It means that he's working to arrange circumstances and situations to accomplish his purpose. It doesn't mean that everything in life is good. It doesn't mean that everything in life is easy. It doesn't mean that everything in life is even according to his plan, but it does mean that God works through all things ultimately to accomplish his will and purpose. Joseph in Genesis 37 through 50. What an incredible illustration of a man who faced all sorts of adversity. I mean, one circumstance after another. Everything was against him. And yet by the time we get to Genesis chapter 50, here's what he says to his brothers. He says, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result to preserve many people alive. In other words, yes, it was painful when I experienced your rejection. Yes, it was painful when I was sold into slavery. Yes, it was hard work when I was serving as a slave, when I was falsely accused, when I was in prison, when I was forgotten in prison. All that was horrible. But I can tell you this, guess what? God and his providence and his sovereignty, he was working all along to accomplish his glory and purposes. And because of God's working, even the things that were hard and painful, God had a plan to put me in this position so that I was spared and my family was spared. And ultimately the entire Hebrew people in this context were spared because it would be through these very people that one day God would send his son as a savior of all the world. You're not going to enjoy every circumstance. It's painful when someone hurts you. There are gonna be times that you feel rejected. You're not gonna get everything you want. But in the midst of it, even when it's hard, we can look to God and know that God is God and God is good. And even when I don't see it, even when I can't understand it, even when I can't feel it, I can trust that God is good and that he is in control and that he's working all things together for the good of them who love him and are called according to his purposes. Joseph understood that his life was not a series of accidents, but a series of divine appointments designed by God to accomplish his will. Paul, similar place. Paul's in this place where he could be like, but God, what, what's gonna happen? And God, what's gonna happen in the process of this? And how's this gonna turn out for me? And yet in the midst of it all, he understood that God was using his imprisonment to give boldness to the believers, to further the gospel. Even at the end of Philippians chapter four, he writes to the church of Philippi and says, by the way, the believers in Caesar's household say hello. How do they become believers in Caesar's household? They became believers because there he was in the midst of that community sharing the gospel. Paul knew that God was working even in situations that he couldn't understand. Rely on the providence of God. Want to walk with contentment? I love this. Rely on the presence of God. Rely on the presence of God. This is where Paul was. He wasn't focused on what he didn't have. He was focused on who he had. He wasn't focused on his sorrow or misery. He was focused on the reality that Christ was with him. 
Philippians chapter 2, he tells us there is encouragement in Christ. There is consolation of love. There is fellowship of the Spirit. Philippians chapter 3, he tells us that he wants to know Christ in the power of his resurrection and in the fellowship of his sufferings. That word fellowship literally means friendship and partnership. In other words, Paul might have been imprisoned, but here's the truth. Paul knew he wasn't alone. Paul might have been in a place where his primary means of communication was riding long distance, but Paul wasn't alone because he knew through the Holy Spirit that the Lord was with him. I'm reminded in Hebrews chapter 13, listen to this statement. The Bible says in verse five, make sure that your character is free from the love of money, being, what's the next word? Content with what you have. Well, what in the world does contentment have to do with the presence of God. Listen to the next statement, verse six. For he himself has said, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you, so that we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What will man do to me? In other words, Paul's key to contentment in this moment as he's looking at this situation, he's saying, listen, I want you to know I might be in prison and I don't know how this is gonna work out, but I know that the Lord is with me. He promised he would never leave me. He promised he would never forsake me. He promised that he would take care of me, that he would sustain me, that he would support me. The Lord is with me. You may be in a situation where someone has left you. Someone passed away suddenly. Someone betrayed you. You may feel alone. But if you know Christ is your Lord and Savior, you're not alone and you never will be because he promised he will never leave you and never forsake you. Did not Jesus say as he gave that great commission to go into all the world, his final statement in Matthew 28, verses 19 and 20, he said, and lo, which means in the King James, and behold, pay attention, sit up, wake up, don't miss this. I know it's July 4th weekend and you're tired, but don't miss this, he's saying. That's not what Jesus said, that's what I'm saying. Behold, I am with you, he says, always, even to the end of the age. The Lord is with us always, so we can rely on his presence. No matter what circumstances may come your way, nothing will ever take away the one who promised to ever to never leave you or forsake you. Third, rely on the promises of God. How do you walk in contentment today? You rely on the promises of God. Paul literally said, I've been in a place of humble means. I've been a place of being hungry. I've been in a place of great need, but I'm not afraid. I'm not anxious, not worried. I'm not defeated, I'm not discontent, why? Because he knew that God would provide. How did Paul learn this? Well, he didn't learn this by having an easy life. He learned this by walking through other circumstances. Second Corinthians chapter 12, the apostle Paul had already been in a difficult situation. In fact, he describes a thing that he experienced. He called it a thorn in the flesh. A lot of scholars debate on what his thorn in the flesh was. Uh, I have an opinion about what that thorn in the flesh was, but I'll spare that for another day. Paul has this thorn in the flesh and he tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse nine, literally that he prays and he asks God three times. And I, I think this, this context is he had three seasons of prayer. Like he is begging God, God, would you remove this thorn in the flesh? Would you remove this circumstance from me? But here's God's answer. He says, Paul, my grace is sufficient for you 
For power is perfected in weakness. In other words, Paul, I'm not going to remove the circumstance. But I am going to come to you into your circumstance and give you my grace sufficient for your need. And I'm going to work in such a way to reveal my power in the midst of your weakness. Paul's got a choice, doesn't he? Do I trust the promise of God or not? Do I find contentment in the promises of God or do I get bent out of shape about this? And listen to how he responds at the end of verse nine and verse 10. Paul's conclusion, most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I love this statement, I am well content. In other words, I am abundantly content. It's like the idea of I'm overflowing with contentment, with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. You know what Paul's saying? Paul's saying, listen, I believe the promises of God. It may not work out the way that I was thinking. It may not work out the way that I was hoping. It may not work out the way that I think it should have. But here's what I do know. I know that God's promises are true. His grace is gonna be sufficient. He's gonna sustain me. He's gonna strengthen me and he's gonna help me. And he's gonna use all this together for his glory and purposes. He believed and relied on the promises of God, which brings us fourthly to the reality. He relied on the power of God. Philippians 4.13, you know that verse of scripture. Tim Tebow used to paint it on his eye black. Other athletes put it on their towels and then on their cleats and then all the NFL and NCAA said no more. The athletes would say that statement, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. But I wanna remind you the context was not about winning some victory on the battlefield, winning some sports game on the soccer field or the football field or whatever else. Here's the key. The key is, no matter what circumstance you face, no matter what adversity comes your way, no matter what hurt you experience or what hardship comes your way, what God is wanting us to see is that we can rely on the power of God and experience his sufficiency. We can find our contentment in him. It literally means that we can do everything that God asks of us with the help of Christ who gives us the strength and the power. I love the way Warren Wiersbe said it. He said it this way. The Christian has all the power within that he needs to be adequate for the demands of life. We need only to release this power by, you're not gonna win it on your own. You're not gonna win it with the help of the culture. You're not gonna win it with good desires and good positive thinking, no. You win it by surrendering to Christ and relying completely on him. Jesus said in John 15, verse five, apart from me, You can do nothing, but the flip side of that is this, but through Christ, we can do all things. The question I would ask you this morning is simply this, are you content? The only way you will ever get to a place in your life where you have contentment is when you get to the place that David came in Psalm 23. Psalm 23, verse one, you probably remember the verse. David said loud and clear, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not, what? Want. I know a lot of people who wish they could say, you know what, I have contentment and there's no major thing, no major other pursuit that I want. The fact of the matter is you'll never get to the point where you find that all your needs are met until you know Jesus as your savior and your shepherd. Let me close with an illustration uh, that took place 
not too long ago, relatively speaking. On February the 1st, 1909, a young child was born by the name of George Beverly Shea in Ontario, Canada. He grew up in a home with many children, and he grew up in a home where he began to learn to play the piano at an early age. Learned the piano, learned the violin, learned the guitar, and quickly discovered he had a beautiful singing voice. As he became a young man and the time came for him to leave home, he left Canada and came to the United States in hope of making a career with music. He desired and dreamed of great fame and fortune through his musical abilities. And finally, the time came in his mid-20s where he was given the offer of a lifetime by a station simply known as NBC. And he was offered to sign a contract with them, which basically would put him as a main entertainer with his music, with his singing. And he was destined in that moment for fame and for fortune. But he struggled. Should he say yes to this opportunity? Should he pursue fame and fortune? Should he pursue? This was his dream after all. But there was something wrong. There was a restlessness in his spirit as he thought about it. He had grown up in a Christian home. He had grown up knowing uh, Jesus as his Lord and Savior. And, and yet there was this wrestling between what would Christ have him to do versus his own dream. And so as he's wrestling this decision, it happened to be a time near Thanksgiving in Canada. And he went home to celebrate Thanksgiving in Canada with his family. As he was there on a Saturday night, he walked over to the family piano and he began to pick away and plug away at some notes. There was a melody that had been in his heart and mind for a few months and he'd been trying to write a song and trying to put the lyrics together, but there were no words that just adequately fit the rhythm of this song. And he got frustrated. In his frustration and frankly, in his boredom, he got up and he went over to a bookshelf in his parents' house and he just thought, I'll find something to read. And as he's thumbing through the books, he came across basically what would be a binder to us, a notebook to us, where his mother had just been collecting all these random things, poems, recipes, letters from friends, and he began to comb through it. And as he did, he came across a poem written in 1922 by a, by a person named Ray Miller. And he read the words and he thought about the words. And as he said the words out loud, he began to realize these words perfectly fit the melody and the progression of the song that's been in my mind. And so he went back over to the piano. He literally set up the poem and he began to read the words and put them together with the melody that had been on his heart and mind. By the time he got away from the piano, he had written this song. I'd rather have Jesus than silver or gold. I'd rather be his than have riches untold. I'd rather have Jesus than houses or lands. I'd rather be led by his nail-pierced hand. And the chorus than to be the king of a vast domain or be held in sin's dread sway. I'd rather have Jesus than anything this world affords today.
His second verse went on. I'd rather have Jesus than men's applause. I'd rather be faithful to his dear cause. I'd rather have Jesus than worldly fame. I'd rather be true to his holy name. He got it from the piano and he knew in that moment how God was speaking to his heart. He finished the family celebration. He came back to the States. He informed NBC that he couldn't say yes to the opportunity because God had something different for his life. In that moment, he didn't know where he was going or what he was doing. All he knew is that God was calling him to say no to that moment and to find his contentment in Christ. Well, a few years passed and it seemed like he had made a very, very foolish choice. But a few years later, he met a man by the name of Billy Graham. He sang in one of Billy Graham's events. Billy Graham was so moved as George Beverly Shea sang that he asked George to join his ministry. For the next 60 years, George Beverly Shea sang in venues, in stadiums, and in countries all over the world. It would be through that ministry that all of his children would accept Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. It would be through that ministry that many of his grandchildren would accept Christ as their Lord and Savior. After his first wife died very unexpectedly of a sickness, 10 years later, it would be through that very ministry that God brought him his second wife. In fact, Wikipedia says of him that Shay sang live before more people than anyone else in history. And in 2013, he died at the age of 104. So pastor, what are you saying? Here's what I'm saying. The whole world said he was crazy for turning down fame and fortune. But instead of singing for his own praise and his own fame, God put him in a position of contentment in Christ. And in that contentment, God did far more with George Beverly Shea than he would have ever experienced otherwise. And he spent the rest of his life singing for the name and the praise of Jesus Christ. What I'm saying to you is this. When you say yes to Jesus and find your contentment in him, you find that it's true. What we sang earlier is true. Christ is enough for me and he is for you if we know him and if we follow him as Lord. Thank you so much for taking time to listen to this podcast. We encourage you to come and join us right here on our campus. We're located right next to the county fairgrounds here in Harrisonburg, Virginia. If you have any questions about the church, any question about the message, feel free to email us or call us and let us know. And we look forward to seeing you soon. God bless you.